Welcome to Tentpole Trauma, the podcast where we look at movies that came with hype and high hopes, but left with crushing disappointment, either critically, at the box office, or both. Freed from the weight of expectations, we seek to examine these underperformers under a new light, parsing through the good, the bad, and everything in between with the hopes of gaining a better understanding as to why they failed to find their audience. Warning, there will be spoilers, so if you haven't seen the movie that we're discussing today, I suggest you stop the podcast and go watch it. Then when you come back and listen, you'll get more out of the discussion. On today's podcast, we examine David Lynch's 1984 sci-fi epic, Dune. It was a long and perilous journey across time and space to bring Frank Herbert's seminal 1965 sci-fi epic Dune to movie screens. Anyone who's familiar with the film and its history knows that in the 1970s, the surrealist filmmaker Alejandro Jodorowsky made an aborted attempt to make the movie. It is really well covered in a great documentary called Jodorowsky's Dune, I highly recommend you watch that movie if you're a fan of sci-fi films or films in general. It's absolutely comprehensive and wonderful, and it's an amazing story. Highly recommend. So it's been covered exhaustively, and we will not be covering it here. We are here to talk about David Lynch's 1984 adaptation of Dune. I have a personal connection to David Lynch's Dune. I was uh, in my early teens at the time the film was released, and I was sort of moving away from my obsession with fantasy and sci-fi films at the time. I was getting more into like rock and roll and heavy metal, but I wanted to see the movie. So I convinced my mom and my stepdad to take me to see it at the Assembly Square Theater in Somerville, as I recall. Now, anybody who's familiar with the film's initial release knows that when you went in to see the movie, you were handed a pamphlet, which was basically a glossary of terms. So I'm sitting down in my seat and looking down at this pamphlet and seeing words like Shai Halud and Mohadib and Gam Jabbar. And I'm thinking, okay, well, I may have... May have bit off a little more that I can chew here, but you know, I'm I like sci-fi. I, I know that generally these types of movies have weird names and words, so I'm still on board here. And the lights went down in the theater, the film started rolling, and anyone who's familiar with the film knows that it begins with a monologue from Virginia Madsen's character, the Princess Irulan. And she's like a floating head on a star field that's explaining that Dune is the planet Arrakis, and on the planet Arrakis is this spice that can bend space and is a drug, and it gives people some sort of power, and anyone who rules the spice rules the universe, and I'm like, okay, I'm, I'm following you here, but this is, this is a lot. 
and she starts to fade away into the star field, and I'm feeling a little bit more relaxed that we're going to be getting on with the story here. But no, she fades back, and she starts to give more exposition. And I think at that point, my mom was giving me the side eye because she really wasn't into these sort of things, and I knew that we were in trouble. As the film played out, there were definitely things that I liked. I thought that the design was cool. I liked the way things looked. I liked the black form-fitting still suits the characters wore when they were out in the desert. I liked Kyle MacLachlan as Paul Moadib and him riding the, the sandworm. I liked the knife fight with Sting, though I think the image of Sting all oiled up in his strange space cod piece was perhaps a little troubling to my ill-formed sexuality at the time. But as the film reached its clunky climax, I think I determined with my not-so-fine-tuned critical sensibilities that this was not a good movie. And I felt pretty disappointed leaving the theater, and I really didn't think about Dune again for a long time. Now, a few years down the road, I'm a young adult, and I'm starting to take movies more seriously and get into filmmakers, and I really start to appreciate the films of David Lynch. I loved Wild at Heart. I must have seen that film at least three times in the theater. I was a big fan of Twin Peaks' Fire Walk With Me, even more so than the show, which was not a popular opinion at the time. And basically anything that had David Lynch's name on it, I'd go see. I also found myself getting back into sci-fi and fantasy. So I thought, I had to watch that David Lynch Dune again. I mean, I had practically forgotten that he'd even directed it at that point. So I put the movie on, and with my newfound appreciation for David Lynch's sensibility, I got a lot more out of watching the movie than I did when I was a teenager. I appreciated more the surreal elements. I kind of got that some of the things were sort of meant to be funny, like that aforementioned monologue by Virginia Madsen. I just got a better feel for what Lynch was trying to do, albeit probably not that successfully. Then later on, I actually read Dune. I read Dune, Dune Messiah, and Children of Dune, and I found myself really getting into Frank Herbert's sprawling epic. I really could appreciate what he was going for in terms of the ecological message. Um, I really appreciated what he was saying about messiahs and how they are built in some of the sequels, and I really dug the psychedelic mind journey he was basically going on. After reading the books, I came back to the movie and could see it through yet another lens. I could really appreciate what David Lynch was up against in even trying to make the movie. I could see where his sensibilities probably made sense in the minds of some producer that he was the right person to do the job, but then I could also see how some of his sensibilities were all wrong and how they failed the material. But that's what we're here to discuss today, the dizzying highs and the terrifying lows of David Lynch's Dune. I'm here now with my guests, Troy. Hello. And Chris. What's up? And we are going to be discussing David Lynch's Dune. Now, first, I want to start off with some initial recollections of the film when, you know, you first saw it. Uh, Troy, how old were you when you first saw David Lynch's Dune? I would have been 
in the sixth grade. And I honestly, for the life of me, don't remember seeing the actual movie. What I do remember is a marketing, an aggressive marketing campaign for this towards kids. So there was like toys and lunch boxes and scholastic books, I think, or some kind of books. Um, I just remember film stills and action figures, I think, of the Harkonnens and stuff like that. And I wanted to think this was really cool, but it, it just sort of confused the hell out of me because it wasn't Star Wars. I had no idea what this thing was about. And that's, I, I don't remember actually seeing the movie until I sort of reinvestigated it later. I think when it was on DVD, it wasn't a movie that stuck in my head and I had to live inside that world. In fact, it seemed like a world I probably wanted to get out of or, or block it out altogether. <laughs> All right, Chris, how about you? What are your earliest recollections of Dune? So um, I definitely didn't see it in the theater. I, whenever, however long it took to come to video, that was probably when I saw it, so either 85, 86. Um, and my brother and I were both big police fans, and so that was pretty much the reason why we saw it. We were like, Sting's in this movie, and it's supposed to be like Star Wars, so let's go rent this thing. It'll be awesome. And we were expecting Sting in Star Wars, and we got something completely different. And I probably remember, you know, Sting the most, and just remember it being very weird and arty, and it most of it going over my head because I was 10 or 11 years old. Yeah, that, that was it. And then I didn't, like, you know, really start appreciating it and watching it again until college uh, when I, you know, could start taking the spice and really in, enjoying what uh, what was going on in this movie. All right. Good. I already shared my sort of recollections with it and uh, my, my experience, so we can uh, move right on to the actual movie itself. And so we get the uh, Urulan intro, um, which watching it now, it seems like an obvious attempt to kind of do the Star Wars crawl, mm. but it's just so weird. Yes. In, you're talking about just the whole idea of having an intro? Yeah, like, like having a, having somebody, you know, with Star Wars, you get three paragraphs of text sort of setting things up. And with the, the intro, you get Virginia Madsen basically delivering three chunks of text, like as if yeah, it was yeah. the Star Wars crawl. And, you know, of course, she does the fade in and the fade out. I will say this about her. She kind of works i mean like as ridiculous as it is i think she's obviously very beautiful and she's got like that kind of presence so as bizarre as it is i kind of could appreciate the fact that she pulls it off she seems like a space princess i'm like yeah, yeah. this makes sense so what was confusing about her giving us this intro to me i remember like being confused about this many times when i watched it is later in the film like who who is this person so she, we sat and watched her yeah. give this intro, and then she doesn't. She shows up a little bit, yeah, with with the emperor. Barely, she's, she's his daughter, right? Yeah, mm -hmm. I mean, but I just got that. And then, it, and then she's just again. standing there at the end, and you're like, yeah, is Paul going to marry her or something? Right? No, she that seems, doesn't even happen. It, it, we're, it seems like we're being told that this is a really important character, and then she's nowhere in sight for the rest of the movie, which is actually 
true to the book. That's kind of how the book goes. I also think it's very weird that she, well, you know, they're breaking the fourth wall. And then the funniest part is when she goes, oh, and I forgot one thing and then comes back <laughs> to give you even more exposition. And it's just so, it's that. like, what is this Ferris Bueller or something? You know, it's just so strange. And I feel like Lord of the Rings kind of like fixed that problem where they, you know, they have a narration that like intros the whole thing and there's a lot of exposition that gets through but they actually show you what's happening as opposed to just like having someone talk directly down the barrel um which i feel like might have worked more but i guess they felt like well let's just do a big exposition dump in the in the beginning and it'll be fine i think uh, talking directly down the barrel is something this movie does constantly this movie is 90 percent monologue inner monologue and exposition yeah i just i think it's weird that that he's like the movie's called dune she says arrakis is called dune do they even ever say dune a second time in the movie like i don't think they ever do it's like kind of crazy that the entire thing is called dune and they they never even mention that that word again they say it's ten thousand years in the future and i give props to that just being finally something realistic as far as you know people always go like 50 years in the future we'll have flying cars and this and this like finally it's all right 10,000 years I'm down that that makes sense okay so we get the main theme which is done by Toto I always thought that that was just some kind of marketing thing and that Toto didn't really do much of the music but I actually did some research and they it's Toto the rock band and they do most of the music Oh, you can tell with the, the electric guitars that start chiming in at the, during the battle scenes. We're getting full Toto there. Yeah, and, and apparently um, they mentioned Brian Eno's prophecy theme or something, which um, is, I guess, a holdover from the uh, Jodorowsky movie. The movie starts, and then we get the, screen, the secret guild report, which is now our second exposition dope. <laughs> oh, my God. Okay, let's talk about the, the PowerPoint presentation, <laughs> yeah. which there, there are a lot of in this movie. So after we had all this uh, intro, then we had some inner monologues about more exposition. Then we get the PowerPoint presentation on the planets. Now, and I think this is different from the one that Paul looks at, which is yet another PowerPoint presentation right. on the planets, right? So there's two of them. And it doesn't even really help. You you watch it and you're like, huh? And then it like goes from the PowerPoint into Planet Kaitan, the Emperor's Palace. And I I had to like rewind it because I was like, wait, what planet are we? Like you, it loses you so quickly that you don't even really catch that. Okay, now we're on this planet. You're like, absolutely hey. trying to follow what planet you're on is really hard in this movie. I mean, most of the time you're on Dune, but sometimes you're not. And like at one point, the Baron leaves and. And then he comes back, which is all true to the book. By the way, weirdly enough, Frank Herbert liked David Lynch's Dune. <laughs> Interesting. I didn't know that. All right, let's move on. Um, now, so we're on the Emperor's Palace on Kaitan, which is a cool miniature. Um, and this is where we get the first sort of look at the production design in the interior, which I think is amazing. It's got this, to me, it has a very 20,000 leagues under the sea kind of vibe, if you, if you know that film. I mm -hmm. dig the guild guards. They're kind of goth and cool. Um, and I feel like that kind of look they have, that bald, pale person in black vinyl or whatever, is something we see like in science fiction movies going forward. Mm. You know, we get the emperor played by Jose Ferrer. 
who I, I just want to throw this out there. I kind of look at this as sort of Lawrence of Arabia in space. Yes. And which Jose Ferrer was also in. Ah, so okay. there's a tie-in. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's a, that's a good point. I honestly don't think he has the gravitas for it. I feel like Max von Sydow would have been way better. When he talks about like, you know, their plans and everything, it sounds like he's ordering dinner and like it doesn't work for me. Sorry to say. He probably was very excited about dinner. I bet the catering was good on the set. <laughs> the one thing that I always wondered is are, are there all the dogs in the book? Nope. Because it's one of the things about this version that I love everybody having these dogs. No, yeah, no pets. Yeah, the pugs. If there are, if they do have dogs, they are mentioned very briefly, and I, you know, it just flew right over my head. What about the, what about a little person in a gold uh, zoot suit? Nope. No. Did you catch him? <laughs> no. Because he was definitely no, in the scene. I didn't scene. see that. Oh, yeah. What? Look at it really, really? closely. He's like, okay. he's kind of hanging out, sitting next to the emperor, and then um, when they- when Is he they speaking bring... backwards? No, but- I, I, once I saw him, I started looking through the rest of the movie and they pop up every so often. And he definitely seems like another David Lynch addition to this thing. Well, I'll tell you what else is a David Lynch addition is the look of the Guild Navigator, which is awesome and is sort of a giant, yeah. giant penis with a vagina mouth. Yeah. I put that in my notes, the giant vagina mouth that folds time. But uh, definitely not the way they are described in the books. In the books, they're kind of like little creatures from the Black Lagoons who live in these tubes. You know, similar idea, but David Lynch really uh, took it in a whole new direction. But interestingly enough, and this was a real revelation to me when I read the book, this whole scene is not in the book at all. In fact, there's no scheme that I recall about with the emperor and the navigator wanting Paul dead. Like that's none of, that's all an added layer of complication that David Lynch has seemingly added to yeah. it. The emperor definitely wants him dead and he sends the uh the Harkonnens, you know, he sets up the whole conflict with the Harkonnens, but the guild navigators don't care. They have no interest in, I mean, they want the spice, but they're going to get it either way because everybody needs to travel in space. So it's like, it's a weird layer of like Game of Thrones intrigue. Like David Lynch was just like, we need another layer on that. The guild navigators need to be involved. What I noticed right away was as I was reading the book, I was like, where's all this cool shit that was in the movie? All the stuff that I kind of liked about this version of the film was the David Lynch additions to this story. Yeah, so all of this with the uh, with the with the Navigator is really not in the book. In the book, they basically jump right from Caladan to Dune without any of that space travel stuff. So anyway, moving on, we get to Caladan. We get even more exposition with uh, Jessica going against the Bene Gesserit to give the Duke a son, and it's in voiceover. Um, I feel like this should have been put into the dialogue and not just put in voiceover, which is a big crutch this film uses to its detriment, in my opinion. But I will say I like the hovering lights. Those are cool. Love them. Yeah, and Love those them. are in the book. But uh, David Lynch's take on them is really cool. Yeah, and we get even more exposition about, which, again, I thought this was funny. The exposition we get on what Paul's looking at his computer is about the Mentats, but the whole thing about the Mentats is they're human computers. So you don't need a computer to learn about like a human computer. There are no computers in the book. All the calculations and everything is done by these people, the Mentats, and there's that um, Freddie Jones plays 
Thufer Highwatt, and you know he's got the crazy eyebrows. I love Freddie Jones. Thufer, yeah, yeah, what yeah, a name. Yeah, he's great, and his look is awesome, and I love the purple lips. The purple lips is you guys, or the blue lips, as you guys probably know, is because that's they're huffing that spice. And that's why. Right. I will say it's weird that it's weird that people like he's so high up and is giving orders to people. But I'm like, this guy seems like he's been on a bender for like 48 hours. (laughs) And like, why why is he like giving orders to people? He's out of his mind. And I will also say that the the names are so like hard to pronounce and pretty hard to remember. And my wife was just watching it, you know, in passing. And she goes. She like they had a, a lot of that exposition with a lot of the names, and she she actually asked like, "Are they speaking English right now?" <laughs> Most people are probably not going to catch up that the the mentats exactly what they do and why they're called right. mentats. It is in there. Paul is learning about it on his computer, which, like I said, makes no sense. Right. But it, it, the the information is there, but you really have to be paying attention. Yeah. Okay. Now they introduce. We get. Uh, Gurney Halleck is played by Patrick Stewart and Dr. Yui Love it. is de- uh, played by Dean Sockwell. And they start talking about the weirding modules. Oh, I, I love the line that Patrick Stewart says, yes. mood is a thing for cattle and love play. But uh, yeah, they talk about how sound, you know, they're talking about the weirding module and sound and everything. And that is all David Lynch. The weirding way in the book is just a form of martial arts. David Lynch turned it into the whole weirding modules and this whole sound thing, which I think is cool. I have to say, this is this is one of the things I do remember seeing it when I was a kid. Is is these sound guns? They're cool. That they use these these weapons that they attached to their throats and could say words that that blew things up and ripped people apart. Yeah, I will say that's totally unique. And the only other thing that I could remember would be, I think, in Minority Report, he uses some kind of sound wave device to, like, push somebody back that he, like, you know, whips around and charges up. I can't think of another sci-fi movie that has, like, a sound weapon. No, so I, I definitely agree cool. that it's very cool. But they, they actually, it's back-to-back like weapon training, right? Because you do the shield thing first, and then the next scene is... The weirding modules. So, you know, they're kind of just showing off everything. And I do remember uh, watching them now, the shields are pretty bad. (laughs) But at the time going, hey, it looks like Tron and and just thinking it was cool just because it was special effects. I thought everything about uh, the weapons training was was really cool when I was a kid. When we do see Patrick Stewart, which I loved, is he brought in this giant space sitar that awesome instrument that he brings it's in. called a balisette and it is in the book and it's brought up several times gurney really loves playing that so that is accurate to the book he he digs his balisette and he plays it a lot in the book yeah i'm just curious what you guys think of kyle mclaughlin as like the warrior because like when i was watching it Maybe I'm just biased by, you know, today's action standards. Um, He wasn't terrible, but I just know that if this were made today, you know, he would have like months and months of training and he's just kind of like jumping around and you can tell they're through clever editing, they're making it work. But, um, you know, he he's not really the action star that maybe this movie needed well he was he wasn't even really an actor he david lynch plucked him out of obscurity literally he was like a he was like a theater guy in oregon or something so he didn't act he hadn't been in a movie at all this was his first movie but i'll say to your point chris that 
I there's no action in this movie that looks like anybody is is an action hero. Like if you look at these battle scenes, they are almost intentionally stiff. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know what I mean? To Agreed. to a style. I think it's a style. I would say that it's the director's uh, way of directing that that the action doesn't come across in this. True. Film. True. Yeah, I would agree. We get to the Atreides Palace, and there's some really cool Giger-like design in the hallway. And here's one of my big problems with the movie. Now that I've become a Dune fan, and it wasn't so much a problem before because this character didn't even really register to me, but we meet Duncan Idaho, as played by Richard Jordan. In the books, Duncan Idaho is the baddest of the badasses, He's a character that carries on throughout the series. I don't want to say how, because it's kind of spoilery, but he's like, you end up loving Duncan Idaho when you read the books. And this dude is lame. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) He's like so boring. Like he's not at all who I would want as this character. Um, I mean, with a name like Duncan Idaho, he's joining the Johnny Utah and Tony Montana, and he better be badass, you know. And so he's a he's a throwaway character for the most part in this in this in the movie. movie. Yes, yeah. yeah. About Giger, the Giger influence too is that like it's funny because they ripped him off because he was working with Jodorowsky, right? And then they did, but they didn't ask him to be on this one, so it was just kind of a holdover ripoff. Probably. Mm. I'm sure everybody was ripping him off at that point because Alien had gotten huge. Yeah, true. It, I mean, it looks great. <laughs> so we meet Jurgen Prock now as uh, Duke Leto. Uh, Jurgen was hot off of Das Boot, which is why he got this role. And, you know, he gives the uh, the sleeper must awaken speech. I love this guy from The Seventh Sign is what I Yes, yes. From. You mean that Demi Moore movie? Yes. I used, I used to love that movie. Funny enough, this is that those are two roles where he plays the good guy because usually he's always the bad guy. I remember Beverly Hills Cop two and whatever, but I'm like, I kind of love him as a good guy. Yeah, he works. He's good, and that speech is really profound. I mean, it's like one of I memorized it. It's like one of those things that I send to people when you know they're moving across the country or something like that. It's like that speech is is gold. It's probably one of my favorite parts of the whole movie. Okay, so then we get uh, Paul's dream, which is, you know, pretty primo David Lynch dream stuff. This is where he, I feel like he actually fits the material. Is this the tell me of your homeworld dream? Yeah. At the time, being a kid, I remember thinking, this is so arty and cool. And, And a few years later, you look at it and you're like, wow, like, it looks like maybe like a Rolex commercial. <laughs> and you're just like, it's so, it, I'm sure it was reverse engineered by the commercials, but uh, I feel like a lot of people ripped it off. And, and at the time, I just remember being so blown away by it. But um, a few years later, not not like people making fun of it. Yeah. So then we finally meet our uh, Jessica, uh, who is played by an actress, Francesca Annis, who... I really only know from this movie. I don't I don't know her from anywhere else really. Also, we meet uh Reverend Gaius Moheim, played by Cian Phillips, who is another woman I don't know from anywhere else. They both sort of have a similar look, so I, I imagine that was kind of what was going on uh in the casting department because you know they're both Benny Jesuit. 
Now, did you guys get the concept of Benny Gesserits from this movie, from watching this movie? Not really, but you you sort of get the overall idea of it. You know, you you get that these are it's a sisterhood that has been well, actually, yeah, what do they do? <laughs> Think about it. Well, really what they're supposed to do is sort of like, you know, like they're supposed to um, perpetuate their sisterhood and they have this sort of, you know, cabal like control over things. Well, you get the in the beginning, they talk about, you know, le- let the Benny Gesserit witch out of the room. So you're sort of told what they're supposed to be. Yeah. It's it's it, even in the book you don't really get a full sense of what their influence is. Later on in the series, you sort of realize that they're kind of pulling the strings in a lot of ways. They're just a very powerful organization of women who are also have these powers, like her voice. And are they taking the spice because they're sort of in control of the water of life? Yeah, right? they don't really. They're not specifically consumers of the spice, but I, I mean, I think they do consume it. But, um, you know, they do have powers. You know, she uses that voice power later on in the movie and the and the Reverend Mother uses it, which I think David Lynch does really well, because, again, it's like a, vo- a like sound thing, which I think he's really interested yeah. in. Um, I like the uh, I really like the design he uses for the, the Bene Gesserit, like the bald head and that habit. I think it's really cool. The Bene Gesserits are definitely something that to me was expanded when I read the book because I feel like I did not understand any of that in the film. But then reading the book where they would mention how much, you know, seeding of their religion they would, you know, in Arrakis and this and that and they're like, oh, this guy's been indoctrinated with our religion so we can totally control him. And that was another level of intrigue that I feel like was very powerful in the book that was not that I did not get from the movie yeah in the book you learn that the Bene Gesserit has have basically set up this whole idea of the Mohadib that there's this prophet and that the prophet mm. is coming like that's all their idea and they basically fed, and they use it yes. to their advantage yeah and they fed that to the Fremen and that's why the Fremen believe it and they have their own Bene Gesserit um, which which totally confused me when I was many watches of the film like because there's another witch yeah, a Sayadina yes. yeah what <laughs> which is confusing but you know but the thing is and this is also gets re- redundantly explained in this scene that Jessica was supposed to have a girl with the Duke but she had Paul and that yeah that's explained a, a couple yes. of times in this and movie. that's how like you know Paul is going to become the Quizak Hatterack and stuff. You know, I think Lynch should have probably taken out one explanation of this, either here or <laughs> earlier. Like, but you know, so we get that, and then we get the um, the Gom Jabbar test, which is arguably the best scene in the movie, and I would say is probably the most iconic scene in Dune in general. And um, I think it's good in this version. I, I I like it. What do you guys think of the Gom Jabbar test? I think we should give it to 16-year-olds instead of the driver's license test, you know. We should we should definitely start doing that. No, I think I think this scene totally works in this film. And um it also is the point at which you're on board with this character. Like he's gone through his first trial for Paul Atreides. You know, up until then he's just sort of like, you know, he's a little sassy during the uh weapons training and then 
it's just all inner monologue for this guy. And then it's kind of good to see him sort of slapped in the face for, for a bit. And then we're sort of like with this character now, you know, that his first trial was pretty solid. Yeah. This is where we get the famous fear is the mind killer uh, quote, which, you know, it's a big, big part of the book, big part of the movie. Um, I like the way that, uh, the actress playing uh, Mo Haim looks like she's like having an orgasm as he's kind of totally <laughs> as he's getting more more painful. Yeah, she she looks like she's real kind of getting off on it. Oh yeah, especially after he pulls his hand out of the box, she sort of takes this big deep breath and then sighs and sort of slumps down in her seat. Yeah, I'm there for it. I think it's a good good take. Um, and this is where we also get like the water of life info, which is really confusing at this point. That's one of my favorite lines is uh, many have tried and died. Yeah. Uh, you know, then there's this sort of melodramatic scene where Paul learns that his father is prophesized to die, which I, f- I think really plays like a David Lynch melodrama scene. You know, David Lynch almost has two ways of directing people, just like people just letting them loose and acting weird. And then also way over the top soap opera, melodramatic acting, which totally works in things like Twin Peaks, where it's meant to be that. But in a movie like this, where everything's so serious, it's, (laughs) it's very weird and bad. Like I was thinking the same thing, Chris. I, I totally agree. Like David Lynch's style is really great for when you have characters that are set in a completely normal like middle america small town yeah and then they act this this sort of uncanny weirdness about them Mm -hmm. but when we're in space it just seems like they're not acting like they're bad actors or something you know it's just like that style does not seem to work in space for well, everything's already heightened and melodramatic anyway, so it's almost like yeah. you're playing too much into it, you know, like you're really taking this seriously and it becomes sort of silly. but it's also like, you know, are these people supposed to be like us? Are they human or are they supposed to be aliens? Like, is it their culture that's doing this? Like, it's just it's kind of baffling, and it, it I didn't really appreciate it until I had seen the whole David Lynch body of work and became a big fan of David Lynch that I was able to sort of dig out more David Lynch things from this yes. film. But then, you know, as far as that style, which I can see happening in this film, it's the one film of his where it just seems totally out of place. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It definitely, for some reason, doesn't quite work in the big space opera setting, which, you know, you'd think it would, but it kind of doesn't. For, for space opera is, I think, to bring recognizable human character traits to outer space so that we can actually be there, you know? But when you have people just acting stiff and weird in outer space, it just, it's, it's, you're trying to, you can't decide if it's, they're supposed to be doing that or if it's a flaw or, and also like everybody's acting this way. It's not like the Harkonnens are acting one way. And the, you know, the Fremen are acting, like, everybody acts this way. They're all kind of weird in the, in the same exact way. Yeah. It's, I, I agree with what you're saying. It, 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 you need to pull back a little and make it more human because you're already in this fantastical world. So it's just too much. Okay, so then we go to Planet Getty Prime and we meet the villains, the Harkonnens. I love the design here. It's all really great. 
Yeah. Uh, we get the we get the legendary Brad Dourif as Piter DeVries. Um, and he's he's doing a Brad Dourif bug nuts performance yep. as the Harkonnens Mentat. Love him. Although I, he, we sort of are introduced to him, he's doing this weird chant like "By will alone." Um, I will whatever, and I. That's kind of like I don't even know what that's supposed to mean. Oh, that mantra. That's where I learned the word mantra. I was like, "What is he doing?" I remember asking <laughs> my brother, and he's like, "He's repeating a mantra." I'm like, "The fuck is a mantra?" And speaking of the overacting, I feel like he gets away with it. I mean, like his hand motions alone, I'm loving. <laughs> it's just like, go for it, man. It's like it's so great. Maybe it's because he's a villain, but this scene where we're introduced to the Baron Harkonnen is arguably the best scene in this whole film, for me anyways. When we see this guy, I mean, it's also the most David Lynch scene in the whole film. When we are introduced to Baron Harkonnen, he's sitting here in this chair with like two 1930s doctors. Like these, these guys costume, they have nothing to do with the rest of Dune. They're literally like in a psych ward in the 1930s, you know, in some, some kind of a hospital. And they're doing like a dermatology on him, trying to get his, his, his skin condition. They're shooting him up and telling him how beautiful he is. And then Sting comes in and Sting in this looked fucking awesome. Like he came in and he's just like, he looks insane. And I, I get that they're trying to like have like, a rock star, some kind of punk guy come into the scene, but it totally worked for me. Oh, he looks amazing. And he's great. Yeah. And he's like kind of weirdly, it's like this S&M version of Sting. And everything about the scene, including the, the people with the stitched up ears and the, the stitched up eyes, which is just there for shits and giggles, right? That's Again, like you can, you just know, like this really didn't have anything to do with the book. We get Jack Nance in there, David Lynch regular, and Jack Nance is in there, and then they, and then he floats up and gets this oil bath, and then goes over and unplugs the heart. That freaked me out as a kid for sure. From this diaper kid who's in there with the, with again like this kind of punk haircut. I love this scene. It's why I like this movie is is right here in this. Before this scene. I had come back to this movie and revisited it, this scene would always be the first thing that popped into my mind because how could it not? I mean, you've got friggin' <laughs> Sting, and like I yeah, love absolutely. the fact that like they know they've got Sting and he looks cool, but they've got nothing to do with him till the end of the movie. Yeah. So Sting, Sting will just keep kind of randomly <laughs> popping up, like just in the background of the scene. He doesn't do anything. He does not do anything no. until the end of the movie, and then he shows up in Paul's dreams later. But he's still like they're just clearly they're just pressing the Sting button. Like we need more Sting. <laughs> Oh, yeah, the only other time that you see him is when he, he like comes out of that steam bath again. He's like amazing, you know, this homoerotic sting that comes out just for the Baron as like this boy toy. And the Baron is played by Kenneth McMillan, who I know he's a character actor. He shows up a lot, especially in the 80s and 70s and 90s. You know, I know he's a character actor, but I only remember him from the two Stephen King movies he was in Cat's Eye and Salem's Lot. That's right. He's the sheriff in Salem's Lot. Yeah. And you know him, you've seen him before in other stuff, but he was in a lot of TV, I think. But yeah, the Baron is badass in this version. Yeah. 
I do have to uh, level a criticism, however, and that is towards the Beast Raban, as played by Paul L. Smith. No, no offense to Paul himself, but he doesn't really... In the books, he's scary. Like, you know, the Fade is supposed to be the pretty boy, like, assassin killer, and Beast Raban is supposed to be this monstrous, but you know, brute. Yeah, this is another one of those weird... He's a comic relief, almost. It's one of those weird David Lynch things that, that I was saying before, where if you had this character as like a high school bully yeah. in, in a normal small town, yeah. he would be terrifying. But in space, this guy just doesn't, he, he barely comes across as, as, you know, ter- as scary. Yeah, that's it. He's a high school bully. That's how he's playing it almost and not the space, you know, beast that he should be. Like if you saw this this same guy like shove somebody against a locker and and then with his sweat coming down over his face and smiling. He's also eating a lot. So he's got that like, oh, he's a fat guy. And so he's eating. Right. That kind of trope. I do love Sting's reaction to the whole, you know, barren rape where he's, you know, everyone's kind of cool with it. But when you look at Sting, he's like. Very, very disturbed. But then once the Baron looks at him, he gives him that, oh, yeah, 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 that that was great. That was very cool, Baron. Like, I, I'm down, I'm down. But like the rest of the time, he was totally freaked out. Uh, Sebastian, does he float in the book? Yes. Is he a flying person? Okay. Yeah, he, well, it's because he's so fat. Yeah. He has to have these like anti-gravity, sus- they're called suspensors or something like that. And they, yeah, they, he floats, he doesn't go crazy with it the way he does in this movie, Yeah, but he needs it to get around because he's too fat. I'll just give a shout out to the, like the color palette for a sci-fi at the time that like sick green, like, uh, you know, and the purple roses against the green. Yeah. 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 I mean, it's crazy how Lynch is given all this money and he puts himself in it, you know, and, and it's, it's very cool. Like, It'll never happen again, so it's cool to appreciate it because I guess it is a little also very Terry Gilliam, the the Harkonnen planet, but it's it's very cool, and the miniatures are, are pretty top-notch, I thought. Yeah, I love the miniatures in this for the most part. There's sometimes when they aren't as grand as they could be, but I always I think they always look good. We have an artist who, who is clearly, you know, he made a racer head. He's clearly making alternative underground films i mean they got him because he did the elephant man and they knew he could pull off a a sort of standard dramatic film but yeah would this type of film be made again when you have a a scene like this where (laughs) you have the the this artist who wants you know flowers in in this green room with um these 1930 you know bald-headed doctors with syringes and what's supposed to be a space opera, you know, is this working for the movie or is it just, you know, we're seeing it after the fact and, and after we know David Lynch and appreciating that scene, but did, did this kind of help tank this movie like that, a scene like that? I think 100%. Yes. It helped tank this movie. This yeah. movie is too mm-hmm. weird. It's too weird for human consumption in 1984. Especially when you have people (laughs) coming off of Star Wars and expecting to see some kind of basic, like, you know, pulpy adventure. And then you're going, not only are you trying to take this really dense and difficult book to begin with, 
but then you're handing it off to David Lynch. Right. Yeah. And also, you know, and at this point in his career, he was also considered for Return of the Jedi. Yes. Right. So he was still a bit, he was a bit of a gamble, but he was sort of a, a hot card at that, at that point. And he, have you heard the, the interview or I feel like he confessed later on that when George asked him to, you know, maybe direct Return of the Jedi that, you know, he went up to the ranch and Luke, uh, Lucas like downloaded the entire story to him. And he said he got the biggest headache of his life because he couldn't like keep Wookiees and Ewoks and all this information in his head. And he like basically flipped out and was like, George, you should direct the movie. What, what are you talking about? And all I can think of now is he read Dune and probably had the worst headache the entire time he was making Dune because and it was all that stuff was in his head and he couldn't deal. Like when I'm watching this movie, that's kind of the biggest takeaway I get from it is that it's a production I would never want to actually be on. It it looks like yeah. everything you get, the feeling that you get from this movie is that the production seems miserable. It seems like they're trying so hard to make this thing work. And yeah. I don't know if it's, again, if it's the style, but the whole film seems to be joyless and unhappy. Yes. As just a general vibe. Yeah. As, and that's your summer tentpole? Like, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Sebastian, was it rated R or PG-13? Because that scene we just talked about feels like a hard R. Like, even though maybe you don't see a lot of blood, it's like, that's a disturbing thing. Like, why would a 13-year-old be allowed to see that? That was... Not you know, yeah, but that was the eighties. I, I, yeah, the eighties yeah. has a totally different rating system altogether. I believe it's rated PG because I don't know if it says PG thirteen on IMDb. But that you know the PG thirteen that was the summer of of a Temple of Doom and everything, right? So it was yes, it might have been retroactively made PG thirteen. Yes, know? it was the same year as Temple of Doom, and Temple of Doom was not rated PG thirteen. It was the film that made the rating be made yes. it. Yes. So yes. Th- was this one of the first ones, or or like you said, was this retroactive? No, this I think rating. it's retroactive. I think it was PG okay. when it came out. After this, we go back to Caladan, and then we get the big space travel scene where they're like in the cockpit of their ship with a pug, which, you know, of course, is what you do when you go into I space. I love the pugs in this movie. <laughs> yeah, love it. A little worried about them, but they do they do seem to survive the film. Um, and like none of, you know, this whole crazy scene with the navigator floating around and Oh my this, god. Like, we- oh my god. Sperm space stuff. <laughs> uh it it's so weird and poorly done like the mats and just like everything the models. It kind of really just uh shits the bed visual effects wise. I mean yeah, that, for me. Visual effects in general in this film is is another thing reason I think this film kind of tanked because at this point 1984 we've seen some pretty good special effects in in science fiction. And there's scenes in here that just look like 1980s sitcom TV effects almost. You know, the blue screens look pretty, pretty abysmal yeah. in this. But this, the style is awesome. You know, these ships look incredible. This scene, though, where they're folding space was probably the most confusing scene I've ever seen as a kid. I never understood you get that they're going somewhere mm-hmm. and it's supposed to be trippy, yeah. but 
it's got this because there's beams of light coming out of a vagina i mean of course you're confused <laughs> there's beams of light come, but also they're like flying into these capsules that have these sort of gold painting frame these these gilded frames with all this ornamentation yeah they're supposed to be these baroque doorways or something yeah and just the fact that they they're already in a ship and you know they're they're already in two ships but they get, fly the ship into the painting <laughs> yeah they go these smaller ships go into an even bigger ship correct that has to be folded yes with the vagina monster correct right correct and i just got that from watching it from this viewing and i've seen this film many times yeah it makes no sense and it's visual mumbo jumbo, basically. Yeah. Um, but you know, it's kind of fun to watch, and you know, ironically, it's definitely a good chuckler. Um, <laughs> but yeah, terrible by today's standards, and it's not in the book. They jump right from Caladan, and then they just, you know, your next chapter, you start off in on Arrakis. Do they fold space though? They they mention that they have to fold space right they talk about it beforehand like oh and then we're gonna go into the thing and it's gonna fold space but you don't actually it doesn't play out in real time as you read the book they talk about the process of it and then they it just cuts to the next chapter and now you're in caladan so 41 minutes into the movie we are finally on arrakis desert planet dune um the desert shots they put in are pretty cool i don't know if they actually went to some sort of location or whatever um they look kind of like miniatures but i could be wrong um we get these sort of confusing flashes of the other reverend mother mother romalo yeah i was definitely confused by she's the fremen now she's the fremen yes reverend mother correct Yes. Yeah, that was totally confusing. Yeah, I, I thought she was the first Reverend Mother. I totally missed that. It's, it's kind of blink and you miss it. It's just these okay. sort of shots of her. And if, I thought she was the same person as a kid. No, that's the one who dies later, and then uh, Jessica takes over for her and does the Water of Life. Um, so we arrive at Arakeen, uh, which is the city, the sort of capital city of Arrakis, um, which... Uh, watching it for the first time, I just was totally confused. Like in the book, it's made pretty clear. Like Arakeen is this city and the palace is, you know, the, in the middle of the city. I, um, I like the actual miniatures and stuff here, but they, again, like I said earlier, they do not like capture the grandeur of that idea. It, you just kind of look at it and you're like, is it, and it just seems like a fortress or something, but totally, yeah, totally. It actually took me a couple of viewings to realize that that's where their base was for, for a long time. Like there's a shield that goes up and, and that's kind of mostly what it looks like is just sort of a shield. Yeah. There's maybe a, a little doorway Yeah, and that's kind of about it. It does not look like a palace. It doesn't. Well, there's another little golden building next to it. I think there's a palace. There's like the military base and a palace. No, that's supposed to be the whole city. Like the shield coming up is supposed <laughs> to be shielding the city. That does not look like a city. Yeah, that's supposed to be a city. Yeah, there's a palace in the city, but that's supposed to be a city, which I do not think is sold at all by the visuals. No, it looked like a wall. There are a lot of weird designs in this entire movie that, you know, don't make any scientific sense. You can tell, like, you know, Ron Cobb didn't design it because it was to deal with that weird corridor with streaks that's actually messages. I, you know, I like they're looking down this, this 
corridor with these streaks and and they're receiving radio messages it just it seems to make no sense we get more exposition here by Euroland, which is you know, the, the princess, which is not good. It should be used, you know, should be stuff we learn in the dialogue. Uh, we learn that um, lame Duncan Idaho is now hanging with the Fremen. Um, they are potential allies. Uh, so we kind of get that information. Um, we get that they, the army is rationing water, which I kind of like that little bit where you see them kind of lining up at the, water rationing stations um and you know so a lot of stuff is going by quickly here and this is another i think major flaw of the film is that you know things will suddenly go by way fast yeah and you know suddenly like you're speeding through information it's even worse at the end but there are sort of these sections of the film where suddenly the narrative is just like Stuff that's going on, like like we see. Um, you mean them settling into the planet when they're like first arriving? You see, yeah, we see Hawa, their um, their right. Mentat dealing with these sabotage devices, and he's like, "There's these are too easily right. being found." <laughs> right, and that was supposed to give you clue you into the the um, the suspense that they're gonna try to invade that, like the Harkonnens are gonna invade them, and yes. That information is so vague that it just seems like they're they're sort of working on their plumbing or something. <laughs> exactly. No, they literally are working on their plumbing because they're they're getting water out of tubes and right. Stuff it's like just that. like oh, here's the maintenance people of this, and then they're like oh, there's a sabotage, and you're like huh, you're not even- right. But it took me a while to realize like there's this moment where they're trying to tell the audience that somebody had planted some devices to try to bring down their their shield yeah like that's that's very unclear they needed a few more like exteriors of the city you know like a sort of moss Eisley scene where everybody's out in the desert because the, the rest of the time well i just learned that this was a city right now <laughs> exactly like i just learned that this like was it just a seems like just the, yeah they're running about. around fixing plumbing in a fort you know that's that's really what what it feels like yeah Okay, so at this point, we get the king of sci-fi, Max von Sydow. He shows up as Dr. Liet Keens. Now, now this is a character that's very important, especially um, yes. in the book, because it basically represents Frank Herbert. Like, this is who he sees himself as. Frank Herbert was um, sort of an ecologist. The whole reason he wrote Dune was to, he wanted to do a sci-fi story that was based around ecology, Sort of the way that um, Tolkien wrote Lord of the Rings because he wanted to explore languages. I think a lot of great science fiction and fantasy, especially from the 20th century, comes out of these other ideas where you get these writers who want to, you know, I want to make a whole bunch of elven languages. And with Herbert, it was like he wanted to talk about desert ecologies and stuff like that. So, yeah, Max von Sydow is basically a stand-in for Herbert himself. But um, so here we get the still suits, which was another thing that when I thought back on the movie as a kid, it was the first thing that came to my mind because I thought they were super cool. I'm a sucker for a form fitted rubber suit, like basically throw somebody in a rubber suit and I'm happy. Um, Well, this was also one of the first science fiction movies where they explained the functionality of the suits and they were cool and gross. There was a reason for why they looked that way. Yeah, you peed and crapped in it, and then it fed it back to you. Yeah, like which is in the book. That's all described in the book. How like you shit and piss in this thing, and then you drink it 
And that keeps you alive. Yeah, for weeks. Which I think is awesomely gross. <laughs> Here we get the uh, blue eye optical effect, <laughs> which, you know, looks fine. Uh, I, I think that's a t tricky needle to thread because, you know, we have blue eyes in real life. So what is this supposed to really look like? You know, it looks fine. You know, it's an optical effect, but it works. Um, Best they could do at the time. Yeah. We, and then we get the foreshadowing with Paul because he's a natural with the suit and he puts it on in desert fashion. Yeah. So, Sebastian, what do you think of this whole like chosen one? Like he can't he's born with it and can do no wrong because I know you have issues with Harry Potter versus Luke Skywalker's journey as a hero. Yeah. Um, does, does it come too easily to Paul that he's just like, I'm born with it and I am the Messiah and that's it. Well, I think that un that unfortunately, if you only take into consideration the story of Dune that exists in the original novel, you kind of walk away from it feeling that way. But the cool mm -hmm. thing about the books, and you know, I would I hope that the new series goes in this direction, the new movies, if they're if he's allowed to make more than one, is that it turns out that being the Messiah is terrible, and right. Paul is a failure as a Messiah, more or less, you know, and there's all these horrible genocides that happen because of, you know, and he, he can't stop it, even though he can see it all happening because he has the power, which is in this movie, but I don't think they ever spell it out. It's, it's really what it is, is prescience. Some people are call it pre-science or whatever, but I'm pretty sure it's supposed to be prescient. Yeah, prescient. Yeah, 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 yeah. Seeing the future. He can yeah. see the future and he can't do anything about it. Like he sees all the pathways ahead of him. Right. And he can only, you know, he has to he has to follow the pathway that he thinks is going to be best, but there's always going to be horrible things that result of it. So Yes, and certainly in this movie and and in, you know, it's definitely there that it just seems like things come too easy for Paul and he's just too kind of powerful right from the, the get-go. But I think that the series tempers that by showing you that it kind of sucks to be this powerful. So okay. that's, that's kind of my feeling on it. I, I was sold more on it the more I read the books. But this isn't about the books. This is about this weird movie. So... Um, we are back at the palace. Uh, we meet the, uh, Jessica and UA meet the new servants and we meet shout out Linda hunt, shout out mapes, shout out mapes. Love I, her. Awesome name. Um, yeah, I'm not sure who's playing her in the new movie. And, but this, this woman is again, one of the, one of the mo more memorable faces in this movie. Absolutely. Linda hunt. She is a very memorable presence. I wish she was in it more. Yeah. I mean, that's it's it's because of the sort of compression of time that's happening. Uh, like you feel like she's more in the book, but, you know, it's still the same basic story. So it's just because the movie is so compressed, we meet her and then she's dead. So she doesn't really have much of an impact. She also gives Paul that that one warning and is like, "I'm here to clean your room." Gives him the warning and then walks away. Yeah, like yeah, and she and she definitely lays out that there's you know that they're going to be betrayed, and we learn of Yui's wife being killed by the Harkonnens, which is the setup for him his betrayal of them. Um, so you know that 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 lets us know who the traitor is which i kind of think is not the best move for a movie 
Um, I'm sure in the book that this is all foreshadowed and you basically know that Yui's the traitor, but the movie should have kept it a secret and they kind of let it out the cat out of the bag. They broadcast it, definitely. Yeah, it, it doesn't seem like the way to go, but, you know, that, that's what they did. Then we get um, Paul chowing down on some spice and he gets some freaky visions. Um, I have to say, this scene, I wanted, it, it wasn't the trippy acid scene that it should have been yes i feel like i've tripped harder on beer (laughs) like it's just there's some ripples and you know he he sort of sees a vision of the worm and then it's kind of over and this is supposed to be this galactic spice that like this is supposed to alter your mind yeah yeah they could have saved some of the some of the imagery from before for this moment to make it even trippier because I feel like he kind of almost shot his water already with, with a lot of the trippy imagery that by the time you get to this, you're just like, yeah, part for the course it's Dune. Well, I think this is um, part of my thesis on the whole movie is that I feel like, you know, on paper you might look at David Lynch and say, well, you know, he's the perfect guy for this kind of head trippy movie. But really, he's not like no. the kind of surrealist that David Lynch is, is not he's not really a visual surrealist. You know what I mean? He's not going to throw a bunch of crazy, you know, psychedelia at you. You know, he does visual weirdness, but it's usually character based and sort of like, you know, more horror in the sense like he's not. Mr. Psychedelia. So I, and, and the book is, is really psychedelic. You know, there are passages in the book that really invoke a sense of sort of mind expansion and like drug trippiness way more than this movie. Right. Jodorowsky would have been, I get that. Right. right? He would have nailed, if in nothing else, Jodorowsky, Jodorowsky would have nailed that kind of thing. But I, you know, David Lynch famously is not a drug user. No, he's a meditator. Right. And I don't even think he was that into meditation at this point, but I could be wrong. Um, you know, but it just, it's not, it's pretty disappointing drug imagery, considering, like you said, we're dealing with the, the space drug of all space drugs. Right. We should be getting way better trippy imagery here. Um, and then the hunter-killer needle shows up, which ironically is kind of druggy because it looks like a heroin needle that's flying around. Like, it looks like a floating syringe penis. Right. <laughs> Um, you know, I don't know if that's David Lynch's attempt at some drug imagery or not. It's pretty much how it's described in the book anyway, though. Uh, and then Paul saves shout out Mapes and she reveals that she's a Fremen and that she knows there's a traitor. In a weird way, it reminds me of that scene, uh, or the scene from Attack of the Clones reminds me of this scene where those, uh, totally. two little worm things are about to get Amidala. And I just couldn't help but think like Lucas was like, just... Do the same thing. <laughs> I also, at this point in the movie, you know, we've been hearing inner monologues endlessly through this thing. And at this point, how many times has, has Paul Atreides whispered to himself, is there a relationship? The worms, the spice. Yes. Like, exactly. stop. Yeah, I think. Like, at this point in the movie is when I'm just saying, like, oh, get, shut up. Even, even you're supposed <laughs> to trip really hard and he's still asking that question. The answer is yes, Paul. There's a relationship <laughs> between the worms and the spice. Can we move on? Okay. 
Uh, then we find a dead Harkonnen in the hall, as well as more hunter seekers. Uh, and Leto and ha Hawat are trying to get to the bottom of things. Again, this is all kind of clunky suspense that doesn't really work that great. Sebastian, I, I will say that um, with the new Twin Peaks series, I feel like Lynch did come into his own with trippy imagery. And I feel like you can kind of almost see this is like the beginning of it. So I feel like he was trying and then he kind of just like actually it that part of him came into his own in the new Twin Peaks series because like that was some pretty trippy stuff. Well, I feel he gets better at it even once we get into like Fire Walk With Me and stuff. You I'd, know? I'd say even even Blue Velvet, which now wait, did Blue Velvet come before or after this? No, that was right after yeah. this. Yeah, he was like he was like, fuck Hollywood. Blue Velvet was basically a reaction to this. He wanted to do something that was just small and easy. Um, but yeah, I mean, I think, you know, yeah, you're right. He could been he could have been sort of testing his feet in the water of this sort of thing. And I think he improved. Uh, but yeah, here it's just not great. So, uh, yeah, there's, uh, you know, they're getting ready for this big betrayal. Uh, the Baron's coming in his ships. Paul is suddenly drugged, which I found kind of weird. I didn't understand what when that happened, maybe I just wasn't fully paying attention. Again, we're in one of these sections where everything that they're just speeding through everything, and it's not the the pace. The pace is bad. Yeah, I'm trying to remember at which point. So the Harkonnens have invaded by this point, right? And they're I don't understand how the Harkonnens operate. I believe in the book they were there and they kicked them out, and then they came back. Something like that. I may be getting it wrong. Maybe this is yeah. this is probably the most confusing part of the movie to me because yeah, there's suddenly a battle, but it it's like there was a sabotage to bring the shield down. Yes, which was also confusing. It, it's like one ADR line where they're like, you yeah. you did the the shields, and then you don't see how the dominoes fall at all. So as a kid or anybody seeing this movie for the first time probably didn't catch that. And then the Harkonnens are there and there's like they're fighting when it seemed like they were just establishing how the spice mining was working. Yeah. And and then there's a battle. And after the battle, I'm lost. Well, yeah, the, the Harkonnens have their own planet. So they're coming from some other planet to invade. I, in the book, it's sort of set up like I think they're already there to some degree, but that's not made clear at all in this. But, you know, I think they're just thinking they have another planet so they're coming from another planet to invade so but it's not it's not clear it's very it's confusing and i remember even being confused by it i was even confused as to which person was on which side based on the costumes because there's sort of this almost um german looking military suit for for the atreides and then the harkonnens are wearing garbage bags with like yeah. these masks in them, yeah right? yes and it took me a while to figure out who's who and and then yeah and there's there's like kind of a cool shot of patrick stewart running out carrying his pugs that's the only cool shot in the whole battle scene that's the cool it's a cool shot it is it's a cool great. shot no doubt and then there's another shot of um what's his name just throwing people off of a ledge and they're just piling up on the ground that's cool the rest of it is trash yeah and but and then we're and then after that we're just sort of with uh, paul and Lady Jessica as hostages in, in the ship. So a whole bunch of stuff happened. And all, the only takeaway is that now, now the, these two characters have moved away from the city, 
we really don't know what the what happened after that. Like then the the Harkonnens are just sort of operating the city. Yeah, but you're you're skipping over the fact that like you know, uh, Mapes is killed, and then it basically we get the reveal that Yui's the traitor. Yeah, uh, the Duke gets uh, you know. The tooth. In, in Ke- the tooth. Yeah, you get the tooth, the tooth, which is which is awesome. By the way, can I can I just say that like if correct me if I'm wrong, but Yui has the worst plan ever. So <laughs> his whole deal was I wanna kill a man, Baron Harkonnen. I'll let this entire planet fall and betray all my people just to get revenge on one dude, and his plan is to have a dying guy blow poison in his mouth. It, it sounds like really the worst plan. Ever. Yeah, it's a bad plan, but I I think we're supposed to get that that he because it is a revenge for his dead wife that he's not really firing at all pistons at, at the same time. Like he's right. he's he's really doing this as a personal thing. He doesn't care about anybody else. He's it's just a purely a revenge operation. I do like uh you know I do like remember the tooth the tooth the tooth. Oh, yeah. Oh, that's that. classic David Lynch there. Uh, we get the scene where um, uh, we, you know, we get the scene where Baron gives uh, Jessica a dressing down and spits on her, which is really gross. Ugh. Yeah. He really hocks a loogie on her. That's kind of nasty. And, uh, and Piter gets creepy with Jessica, Brad Dourif doing creepy bad Dourif pretty well. Sebastian, are you? Is it so? You're also telling us that Duncan Idaho doesn't die here in the books. And no, in the books he lives. He does die in the book, but he's brought okay. back in later books. Spoiler, uh, but oh, he he okay. he doesn't die as quickly because it seems lame that he he doesn't. Yeah, he basically kills a few people and then bam, he's out. This whole section again is so con like densed that like it, it like it takes much longer for all of this to happen in the book. There's much more mm. story here, but we're getting such a hacked up version of it that it's all happening super quickly. And then uh Piter, you know, orders them taken into the desert, which is another stupid plan. Like, why are you going to send these two really valuable hostages yeah. off into the desert with two lackeys? Yeah. Like really dumb. And then, and then when they were supposed to die, how come the two lackeys didn't report back? Yes, we brought them there. Everyone just assumes they're dead, even though those guys never came back. I mean, I don't know. Yeah, it's all it's very poor planning on the Harkonnens' part. But again, this is from the book. But for me, this is where the the movie really picks up steam for me. Like honestly, like this is where I start to really like the movie once they get out into the open desert, and it's just. Kyle McLaughlin and and his mom just doing their thing. To me, this is where the movie actually hits its stride for me personally. Well, this is also where you feel like Paul is a hero because up until this point, he's just been sort of groomed, you know? Mm -hmm. So once he's thrown out into the desert, then he has to actually start doing things uh, for himself on his own and and is, you know, got to save his mother. So he actually has things he's got to do at this point. Yeah. And and the planet is there. You're on Dune. Finally, it's the worms. It's right. it's the Fremen. It's like oh, this is where all the good stuff is for me. The rest of it is just you know needless political you know posturing. And you, you I, for me, you don't really care. This you know is the 
the poster of the movie is him in the desert with the still suit. You're just like, this is what I came to see. We uh, skipped over one kind of major scene earlier, speaking of this stuff out in the desert where Paul and the Duke and Gurney and uh, Max von Sydow. Oh, yeah. They check out the uh, the mining. Yeah. Cool scene. Yeah. It basically, it's a cool, we get our first look at this the uh, worm, which I think looks great when it comes up underneath the um, the mining facility. We get our David Lynch cameo, which is amazing as the miner. But, uh, you know, it sets up the idea that the, you know, that the Atreides have are heroic and they care about other people, not just themselves. As said through Max von Sydow's inner monologue. I like this Duke. Well, if Max von Sydow signs off on you, you know, you're, you're a good guy. (laughs) Right. (laughs) Yeah. So we're in the, um, ornithopter which is what those ships are called. Evidently is is a David Lynch design. Totally. Which is it's a little different from the other ships. That's one he he personally kind of tweaked with. And you can tell it looks like one of his his pieces of furniture. So they're out in the ornithopter, the one of those uh Harkonnens gets kind of rapey with Jessica. She uses her Benny Gesserit voice on him and he kills the other guy. And then Paul's got to take control of the Thopter because he's great at everything and can fly it awesome. Um, and they find out that Yui was really looking out for them because he hid like still suits and stuff and, you know, whatever. The ring. The ring. That The ring is one thing I wanted to bring up because it's given this significance and I'm not sure what the significance is. Yeah, it seems very significant because they were pissed when he didn't have it. It was in the the PowerPoint presentation in the beginning. Is it? Yeah. The seal of the yes. uh, Atreides. It, or and I again, like I I retained nothing from the PowerPoint presentation, but yeah. it is in there. I just don't know what all those things are supposed to mean. Is it that unique that they can't like keep their whole line without it? I, I don't understand. Like they need to write letters with that seal. Like what's yeah. what's going on? Like, I don't I don't understand the importance of it in this movie. I don't remember it being mentioned at all in the books. I don't see why it would matter. Like it's not like they can sign off on stuff pretending they're the Atreides or anything. Though, like nobody's that's everybody's going to know the Harkonnens are. Right. Running Dune. I don't see why they need this silly ring, but the movie. It's an makes, extra thread. Yeah. The movie makes a big deal about it. Uh, we get the scene where Baron is gloating over Leto and he's floating around. And like we mentioned, he wants the ring. The, he, Leto uses the tooth, but he gets Peter, Piter instead of Baron. And, you know, Jessica and Paul sense Leto's death. Uh, and. There is this cool, one thing I do like about this is, is that cool prosthetic that they put on Jürgen Prock now with, you see the smoke coming out of the side of his cheek. Really cool. Yeah, oh, I love that shot. It's really yeah. cool. That's some good, good, creepy prosthetic work. I have to give uh, a shout out to uh, uh, Brad Dorff's uh, death, like when he just goes, rah, <laughs> like <laughs> launches himself back. It's like, really, you're just like, how do you die from a insanely poisonous, uh, bad breath, you know? And he does a good job. That scene with Brad Dorif, um, got me confused as a kid because he acted so much like that character in escape from New York. Totally. Yeah. You know, that, that other guy that came out and said, if, if you come down on the ground, he dies. Like, I got those two guys, those two characters confused Absolutely. because of Brad Dorff's performance in this. Yeah, I could see that. I love that guy's hair in Escape from New York. His hair is amazing. 
It's all spiked. Yeah, they look they look the same. Yeah. Yeah, if you want to do heroin, those are the two guys to, to call. <laughs> anyway, so we're we're basically crashed out in the desert now. You know, Paul's got to crash the the ornithopter. Paul has more visions this time of the navigator wanting some wanting him dead. Uh, you know, more sting laughing because you know they paid for a rock star and they got to get him in there. It's a good laugh. Paul's prescience tells him he will be called Moadib, and the spice is changing his consciousness, and he realizes that his mom is pregnant. I just love the concept of like the thumpers and having to walk without rhythm. Yeah, it's just so cool, and and I feel like potentially could have been like a very. I mean, it is awkward to walk without rhythm, but they kind of handle it. I don't know, and I I'm so curious how they were like how are we going to do this? <laughs> you know, did everybody have like their own way of walking in the desert or were they, you know, like I'd love to see the outtakes where it was like extra goofy. Yeah. And... David Lynch is yelling at people cause they've got too much rhythm. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> we get the Baron killing kinds by messing up his still suit and sending him out to the desert to die. And we see that, uh, how is being held prisoner? Um, none of this really matters much in this movie these are things that are important in the book but kind of don't really matter in this movie much i was still so confused as to now now paul is out with his mother in the desert and and what's happening back at the city so it i never really understood what the harkonnens were doing at that city at this you know well Basically, the what they what happens in the book, and this does happen in the movie, but it's handled so clumsily, it, it's hard to follow. Basically, the Harkonnens take over and they hand over the entire city to uh, Beast Raban, and then he becomes sort of the, the not the Baron. To, they handed it to no, Raban. The, the Baron goes off back to his planet. He okay. puts Raban in charge, which is another reason why having Beast be this goofball. Doesn't yeah. doesn't work because he's kind of. I, I noticed in the, I mean in the new movie it's um, Batista and he's perfect. Like he's a scary dude, and if he was in charge, you'd be scared. You know, like he's imposing. He looks like he can handle himself. He looks like he's not an idiot. So it's like, you know, I could see that guy being in charge of the planet. And in the book, five years goes by. Like this is a, right. there's a long time that the Harkonnens are still in charge. So like after the Duke is killed and in the, they kind of touch on that in this movie, but it's so rushed that you don't feel it at all. Yeah, it's just a montage. Yes. Right? It's just a montage. So, I mean, that's what's supposed to be happening. And the people that are left behind that are the Atreides are either killed or imprisoned or, or, you know, or whatever. I don't remember exactly what happens to Hawat or whatever. I think he's saved later, but like Gurney Halleck escapes and that's why he's out in the desert later, Patrick Stewart. So it's like some of them get out and get with the Fremen, but a lot of them are stuck in Arakeen and killed or whatever. Right. I will say that like having a goofy beast it bodes well for like how he isn't able to control Arrakis, right? I mean, isn't that what they're saying? Like, oh, he does a bad job and, you know, he left him in charge and they probably shouldn't have. I mean, I get what you're saying, but I feel like what they were maybe that's their angle on it is just like, Oh, we left, you know, Jar Jar Binks in charge of this. And so of course Paul's going to win and, and it's going to bring the emperor because things got so fucked up because we left this guy in charge. 
They should have put Sting in charge. I mean, you know, you've got <laughs> yes. Sting. Yeah. Put him in charge right. and then have Paul fight him at the end. And it's like, it makes sense. But the way, just yes. the way it's set up here by being too faithful to the book, it doesn't work as well because, you know, they should have just given it to Sting. Well, let's talk a little bit about the writing really quick. So David Lynch did write this screenplay, correct? Yeah, no, it's, he's the only one credited as screenplay. Which might... Uh, be telling of all this inner monologue and exposition. Yes. That's a problem. Yes. yes. You know, he definitely doesn't seem like he's got a grasp on this sort of epic storytelling. I don't think he cares. Yeah. And if you look at all the dialogue in, in Eraserhead, you know, you can kind of kind of see where he was coming from with this sort of voiceover all the time. All right. So we get now we get our big worm attack which is you know a pretty fun sequence you know they're setting up the thumper and all that and you know paul's wondering about the worm and the spice if they're in a relationship the answer is yes paul they are in a relationship that's what their status says on facebook <laughs> the uh you know they they go into that rock which is a pretty fun sequence again not with the sort of grandeur you'd want it to be. You know, the rocks seem like a set and it's not. Yeah. Limitations. But again, it's it's suffering here from visual effects. Yes. Where I feel like at at this time in 1984, other films were pulling this kind of thing off a little better. You need a director with the vision to pull it off, you know. I mean, I, I do love the way that the... the, the worms the, the look of the worms when they emerge from the sand i think is pretty great and honestly like i i like the maybe i'm just partial to it because it's what i know but from what I, little i've seen of the trailer i'm not you know i can't wait to see the the worm in imax in the in the new one but when they finally showed the design i was like kind of like the old one. Oh, the worms look great in this, the actual puppets and, yeah. and the, you know, the miniatures and stuff. It's just when you optically composite yes. yeah. some of these characters, these actors with the worms, everything yeah. falls apart. They, it just Oh, that one shot work. of Paul falling. Oh, so just, bad. Yeah. <laughs> and there's nothing but gr- <laughs> Oh, my God. Just like quick. Like if they had put in like three frames of it, maybe. But like it's a full like second and a half. And you're just like, uh. Like not quite like up to the snuff of like an A-level Return no. of the Jedi. But even Return of the Jedi, which has a lot of imagery in it that sort of prefigures what's going on here, just with the early stuff, especially in the... in the uh, Return of the Je- uh, Jedi suffers from the same blue screen problems that this right. one does too. Exactly. Yeah. I think it was just kind of an awkward time for blue screen. Yeah, like some films got it and some films didn't quite well, get it. Even like yet. Temple of Doom, which is also this year, has some great stuff in it, but there's some rough blue screening in there too there's a couple Mm. of shots that are pretty bad you know like when he gets out and you know out of the mines yeah yeah the water's coming after him yeah yeah yeah. i just think they just didn't have it down yet so i don't really blame the movie that much i'm i what what i rub against more is just that it doesn't feel big you feel it feels claustrophobic you know, even, you know, I, I mean, when they're in the cracks of the rock, I guess it's supposed to feel that way, but it just doesn't, it doesn't have the grandeur that you want from the story. I think that that's a way that the new movie is definitely going to. Yeah. I didn't feel like this time. giant Leviathan was 
hammering these rocks from right. from the outside for sure but i agree with you chris the design of the worm i do like and it you know uh, you know i do think it might be better than the new one the new one looks more like a butthole and the uh the old <laughs> ones look more like a vagina <laughs> it really does so anyway they are saved by a thumper set up by the fremen and uh, then we meet Stilgar, as played by a Lynch regular Everett McGill, and uh, or Daddy Under the Stairs, da- I like da- to call him. The stairs. <laughs> right from People Under the Stairs. Um, but this part kind of bugs me because everything just happens so fast. Like they just show up, and Stilgar's like, "You, you may be part of our <laughs> our yeah. clan. We will call you Usul." And then Paul's like, "Can you?" call me Moadib and he's like okay Usul we will call you Moadib <laughs> it's like well, didn't you just give him a name <laughs> and he's introduced to to Sean Young here oh god and she basically just kind of shows up as as the the girl she's bad yeah in the book there's tension between them they kind of like she wants to kind of kill him there's way more the Fremen are like want to like kill them at first, that's like that's what they would do. Sebastian, having read the book, what do you think is would in an ideal world? What would you want to see? Uh, like three movies, or do you want to see? Would you like to see this made into a series? Like ideally, to to give the book proper justice, what do you think? It was a series already. Yeah, we didn't really talk about the mini series because I don't know if it's worth talking about. It's fine, but um, mm-hmm. no, I mean I think that you know doing two movies is good. Like there, there's enough there for two movies. You could maybe stretch it out. The problem is with the, with the book is that even though it's sort of epic and this sort of takes place over this long amount of time, there's not that much really that happens in it. So, I mean, there's a lot that happens, but not in the terms of like, you know, having these epic movies, you know, like it's not inconceivable to fit it all into like a three hour movie. Like you could do a three hour movie and do pretty, you do justice to it. But an eight episode series would be too much. You'd have to fill out more stuff. You'd have to Mm -hmm. have more, you know, you'd have to TV it up by adding more subplots and stuff because there's just not, you know, there's not enough actual, you know, things that happen. Got it. Once Paul gets out to the desert, they jump the book, you know, you know, if you're, if we're talking strictly at adapting text from the book, it's like once Paul is out in the desert, like he, he basically, you know, the, there's not much that happens there. He's there for five years and he's mm-hmm. hanging with Chani and he's like ingesting spice and drinking the water of life and all that stuff. But it's, it's not, you know, there's not a lot of plot at that point. Got it. Anyway, so yeah, I mean, I feel like this part of the movie suffers because, you know, they cut all that kind of stuff out. And, you know, it's just they immediately accept Paul and, and Jessica and, you know, it's just, you know, and, and Chani saying that she wants to, she wants the deets on Usul's home world <laughs> and everything. She's so bad. She, her character in this this version of this film is this, she's essentially a womb. Yeah. And that's about it. Like she is, she brings nothing else to this except to bear their child. Like she's, she's immediately interested in him for, for basically just for not really any other reason. 
uh, besides he's just the chosen one, but um, she, she, she's a two-dimensional character, if that. Right, and it doesn't help that Sean Young isn't the greatest actress <laughs> and clearly just got this gig because of Blade Runner. And uh, yeah, it's just, it's a character that doesn't really have any impact and it just seems like a, you know, hollow love interest character. Um, but, you know, at this point, I think we're in trouble anyway because things just start going so fast and like, you know, montages and, you know, the only thing that really sticks out in this section once they, they meet the Fremen, I mean, I like when the Fremen show them the water that they're hiding underground. And... Yeah, and a question with that, does that ever come up again? I mean, is that how he makes it rain? Or is that it just, oh, we got these caches, so? Yeah, it doesn't come up in this movie. No. I mean, it, it matters in the book, in the story, but yeah, in this movie, no. Yeah, it should be a crucial uh, piece of information that the, that this whole planet actually has all of this water that's controlled by the Fremen. Yeah. And it, and should give them so much power, but they just sort of show it to him. And it's, it's sort of almost like taking him to the garage and saying like, yeah. we got a couple of Lamborghinis here too. Exactly. Well, that's <laughs> funny. It's funny that you should mention the, this because now we're, I'm, we're at that scene that we were talking about earlier where the Baron is like flying around and all that steam. Is that implying that the Baron's like wasting water and like, he's just so, <laughs> you know, Oh yeah, careless with water that he's he'll. Waste I never it. thought about that, aside from anything else, but just make Sting look oily and sweaty, looking cool. I just, I just <laughs> thought of it now. It never occurred to me. I was just thinking about it because we were talking about the water. He's totally wasting water. And this is the scene where Beast Raban shows up and eats the cow tongue, and that Baron gives Arrakis to the Beast. I'm not sure why. And then Sting. This is the famous Sting emerging from the steam in the metal cod piece, and the Baron's like, "Oh, fade, sweet fade." <laughs> He's really getting horny. Now, do they have a relationship in the book? Uh, Sting, or yeah, Sting and the Baron. Do they have a some sort of erotic uh there's there's sort of some gay panic element in the book a little bit i mean it's sort of implied it's definitely the character fade in the in the book is sort of a more of an impetuous you know he's not as like rock star as sting he, he's a, he's a younger guy he just kind of wants to prove himself it's kind of his deal he's not much of a character honestly in the book so yeah it, it's sort of there but not you know Lynch definitely dials it up and Kevin McMillan definitely dials it up. But, you know, it works. I think it's kind of effective in its own weird way. Yeah, I think it's great. But I was just wondering what it compared to in the book. You know, they're not like sex slaves with heart plugs or anything. The heart plugs too? That's David Lynch? Oh yeah, that's all David Lynch. So now we're back in the desert. The Fremen want Jessica to take over their dying Reverend Mother. She drinks the water of life. The old Reverend Mother dies and Jessica lives, but the water causes her to uh, give premature birth to Aaliyah. Oh, the scariest man. thing ever. This kid, yeah, kind of when she has the devil voice, but this kid bugs the shit out of me. I'm going to disagree. I love Aaliyah, um, who will be played later by oh, Alicia Witt. Uh, I love it when Aaliyah shows up. I think she's 
great. Oh my God, that's Alicia Witt? Yeah, that's crazy. That's Alicia Witt. But you don't like, so Troy, you don't like Aaliyah? This bugs you. little brat showed up and first of all, it's like the, the voiceover on her just sounded terrible. I like it when she tries to be a little devil, like when she confronts the Baron. My brother. <laughs> that seems kind of cool. Oh my God. But I remember it, it was one of the scenes that- How can you not like my brother? I know, but it's I mostly remember kind of getting into this film when I first saw it as a kid until you saw that end battle and this kid in this sort of music video stance like holding up her knife yeah oh i love that that. bad optical against the desert with her robes flying in the wind sebastian if if we're jumping to this i will tell tell you that this is the reason this movie did not do well (laughs) because she she ends the movie she's so freaky with with the voice and just just her costume and everything that's going on is making everybody in the audience feel icky and is like (laughs) totally pissing away the goodwill, any goodwill that this movie earned. And then when she's, the climax of the movie is she goes, he is the Quitsax Haderach. Yes. Everyone is scratching their head going, what the hell is the Quitsax Haderach? And then the credits roll and it just left everybody with the worst feeling walking out of this movie. And no one was going to recommend it after that. Like, so if you want to know the stumbling block of this movie, that is it because... There was no coming back from that. Yeah, I I agree, Chris, and I think that's that's why I'm being really hard on this kid. And it's it's really she would have been fine, but it's what you were saying, Seb, is that at this point we're rushing through stuff so fast, and years are passing. Yes, and then suddenly there's this kid, and we don't know, we barely know who she is or what what her her impact is on these people, and then the movie kind of just sort of wraps it up, like. She should have been introduced halfway through the movie. Yeah. We spent so much time lingering in these this fortress and you know watching these people have meetings and and talk like they could have they could have jumped way ahead to have this character have more of a presence in this movie and and basically be the third act, right? Well, I'm just in the in the books she ends up becoming kind of a villain in later sequels. So they I think they were thinking in franchise terms probably. So they're like setting her up in this movie and then she's gonna be a bigger deal in later movies. But anyways, we're we're getting ahead. So anyways, she this he has a daughter. We haven't even talked about the worm riding and all that. Right. So yeah. Well, I mean, we can move through this quickly because the movie moves through it quickly. Yeah. The only thing we got to talk about is, you know, cutting away from the stuff in the desert is the cat milking scene. Oh, where my God. The Love Baron tortures Hahawa with the cat milking. <laughs> yes. Which is not in the book, by the way. Of course it's not in the book. Um, Paul and Chani are in love. And then we're rushing, rushing, rushing. Paul's the leader now. We get the scene where he's teaching them the weirding way with that pyramid thing. Um, Which is cool. I, I do like that, you know, training. It's a good light lightness, too. I feel like when he yells at it to break, it's actually one of the humorous, like, human moments in the movie. Yeah, agreed. You know, he's laughing with these these people. It's where we kind of feel like we're really there hanging out with these characters. Yeah, I agree. It's a good moment. He's getting chummy. 
getting chummy. He's talking about how they got to destroy the spice because he who destroys a thing controls a thing, which is sort of cool, but I'm not sure if the logic really pans out there. Um, and you know, we, we get Paul riding the worm and all of that. That's a big, you know, scene in the book. I feel like it's okay here, but definitely again, the grandeur of it could be better. And again, like Troy's been pointing out the, the, you know, green screening. Yeah. It's, this is one of the worst, um, moments of the blue screen problem here is writing these worms. I really like those poles that they use. I forget they have a name in the, in the, um, the books. I think they might just be called like worm hooks or something. I forget what they're called, but you know, I, I do like the way he wedges it into the segment of the worm and uses that to go up. That's described in detail in the book, and it's it's cool. I mean, it's definitely not as done as well as it could be here, but you get a lot of uh, Toto electric guitars in this scene. That that Toto awesome. power chord just slams yeah. right in, and it just it crashes in <laughs> like Twisted Sister or something, man. I mean, it is it just comes in uninvited, and you're just like, oh, okay. I guess it's that kind of movie now. And like, honestly, like I, Troy, you were saying that apparently there's a lot of Toto guitar. I never notice it until all of a sudden, bam, it just yeah, it comes right it's in. It's the warm writing like, scene. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So, you know, Paul takes the water of life. The sleeper is awake and we're sort of jumping around here, but that's how the movie feels. So I feel that that's fine. Yeah. Honestly, I can't tell when they ride the worm. When they take the water of life, yeah, I, which, and I just watched this, and I'm still, it's it's sort of floating around in my memory when these things happen. He takes the water first, then he does the worm, blah blah blah. But um, you know, it definitely the way it's it's edited feels like a jumble, and it's you really find yourself losing tr- kind of track of what happens when. Yeah, and so you know, he gives the big rousing speech, and they they uh, wage war. Um, on the, you know, I guess the, he gives the, they wage war on the empire because they basically know that it's not just the Harkonnens, that this was a plot by the emperor and, you know, the emperor finds out he knows that Paul's hip to him. And so, you know, they're sending everybody to Arrakis to fight, which, you know, it's like, if this was so, if this was so important, why did the emperor, why is he leaving it up to these Harkonnens? It. A lot of this. Wait, he, maybe you can ex, uh, explain this to me because this was another part where I was totally confused by is they're they're having this war out on the desert, and suddenly after this is after years, right? Patrick Stewart shows up. Yeah, and they they have like, oh my God, Gurney. Yeah, where have you been? Is it really you? Where was he this whole time? It's like when you you know go to like a fish show or something, and you you're like <laughs> with a bunch of friends, and like yeah. so you take a bunch of drugs, and then some you go some of your friends go off in one group, and then later on, like <laughs> when the trip is over, you're like, oh, hey, look, there's you, you're yeah, you were but, here. But no, was Gurney with the with them with the Fremen this whole time? Gurney escaped from the battle on Arrakis on his own, ended up with on his, pugs. his own. And with his pugs, but he ends up with the Fremen on his own, basically. On his own? Yes. So, But don't you think that, because we're talking about like four years here, that Paul would have heard word about Gurney? Yeah. Because they were pretty close. Yeah, no, he, he hasn't heard word about him. In the book, it's much more of a scene. Like in the movie, they're just like, hey, yay, it's you. In the book, yeah. there's much more conflict there. Like, like in the book, a lot of people think that the Jessica was behind the betrayal. 
And so a lot of people like Duncan and Gurney are like mad at her, but then, you know, basically Paul tells, you know, they, they admit that they're wrong, but you know, there, there's much more going on interpersonally between the characters in the book. I have to say that Paul, Patrick Stewart's bald mullet is a sight to behold. I mean, if that, oh, I love it. if that look ever came, I, that's probably the only like hairstyle I could actually rock. Um, and if that ever came into style, I would totally love to do it. But, um, it's called a skullet. I want to see him with the skullet playing the space sitar. Yeah, I'm bummed. Yeah. That would be rad. I'm bummed that there's not the Balasset, a.k.a. the space sitar in the movie, really. And does Patrick Stewart not age? I mean, this is 1984. He looks the same. It's crazy. Yeah, exactly I mean, like, what the hell? Like, He's one of those actors like Harry Dean Stanton that just always looked exactly the same his entire career. They always yeah. looked about 50 Anyway, so yeah, there's battles and fighting and it's all pretty bad. The Baron comes back to Arrakis, which I thought was confusing. Like you see him in his spaceship coming back and it's like you forgot that he even left sort of, you know, so the um, the Emperor and, and the Baron come back to the Imperial Palace and that's sort of when Aaliyah shows up and is messing with them. Um, while the Fremen are attacking with atomics and then worms and there's a storm and it's all just a big mess. And this is easily the worst part of the movie. I'm, I mean, I think, Chris, to, to your point, I do agree that, you know, the sort of ending of all of this with Aaliyah is pretty bad. But I mean, I think at this point is where the movie completely drops yeah. the ball. And the emperor is so bad. Like, I feel like when he's like manning that gun and it just looks like he's like messing up at a video game. It's like there's no stakes to his performance at all. He's just like, oh, yeah, I guess they're winning. Oh, shucks. You know, you're like, what? You're the emperor and everything's crumbling down and it doesn't matter. It just. Uh. Also, there's there's more time passing with Aaliyah growing up and, and gaining her powers. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Just we're, so, over. and all more voiceover. We're just, and it doesn't even seem like it matters at this point because everybody's just sort of flailing around. Yeah. Right. And you're supposed to be invested in a Aaliyah for some reason, but you're not. Although I like yeah. her because she's creepy and weird. I mean, I do say there there are several moments of action, like when the when the worm like lands on a bunch of people and kills a bunch of people, even though the effect isn't great. That idea, I remember at the time being like, yes, we saw a worm just crush a bunch of people. And when the Baron flies into the worm, that is a great payoff. So yeah, it's cool. Those are the salvageable moments for me from, from this hor- otherwise horrible battle scene that is completely anticlimactic. I'm glad you're at least sticking up for the Baron flying into the worm because I love that. It's hilarious and awesome. Yeah. I, I got a question for you guys. What do you think um, Virginia Madsen is doing at this point? Collecting a paycheck? <laughs> you know, standing there in a nice costume? Yeah, she's just in the background. I mean... Trying to remember what she forgot to say? Yeah. <laughs> she should come back and be like, I forgot to tell you one other crucial Oh, I just point. remembered. Yeah. <laughs> I just remembered I'm in this movie. Um, <laughs> I mean, again, I think this is some setup for sequels that are never going to happen because she's, you know, a character. Paul ends up marrying her because he has to, even though he's oh. really still with Chani. But, you know, they have to have a royal 
marriage. Wait, is paper. that in there? Did, does he marry her? No, it's not in the movie, but oh, okay. it's in the books. That's why she's All there. Right. Like she's, right. Oh, so she is important later. Exactly. Yes. Okay. That's why she's there in this movie is because later she matters. And there's also just no conflict up until like Paul just, it's, they just walk in. They're just like, hit the atomics, go in, start killing people. There's never, ever like any change in the tide of the battle. So you're just basically just watching a bunch of bad special effects and it doesn't, Nothing comes up against Paul until Sting, who kind of like, to me, walks away with the movie at this point, because he finally stands up to Kyle and adds a little bit of drama by maybe besting him. Yeah, but that was an incredibly anticlimactic fight. Do either of you guys, I just always think of the Flash Gordon fight when they're on that... Oh, that moving thing. Yes. A gimbal with the spikes coming That's up. funny. There's, I, I kind of associated these two films. Like, I kind of remember them in tandem. I see that. Yeah. There's the Max von Sydow yeah. tie-in. But yeah, it, it had, it's because of the overly garish production design. Yeah. You know, these were two films where they just blew their, their budget. Yeah. And it was, it was just like endless amounts of, of production design for both of these movies. Agreed. Yeah. I mean, and look, back in those, in the early 80s, like, there weren't that many games in town. Like, if you were into Flash Gordon, you would have saw this. So, you know, I I saw both of these movies. But it was just those two scenes, I always sort of equated them in my mind. The Flash and Baron fight on the platform with the spikes and this fight with Sting. I just rewatched Flash Gordon recently, and I got to say, that's a better fight than this one. There's like way better. There's fight. like whips and stuff and the spikes. Oh yeah. No, up. this this fight with Sting lame is like a wet fart. It's just that like Sting shows up and you think, oh my my god, man, he's gonna take this guy down and it's gonna be bloody. He's gonna barely come out of this alive, and he just kind of like knocks Sting over. It's it's sort of like that Mike Tyson fight where he. He knocked the guy out in in like two minutes. (laughs) (laughs) But let me just say that, uh, you know, as a kid looking forward to Sting, which is kind of like the whole reason I I got to see this movie in the first place, he starts to like really feel his oats here. And he's like, you know, he's just hamming it up and having a good time. And he's like being the villain, like in a Flash Gordon movie. And you're like, oh, this is actually entertaining because Sting is taking it over the top. But to me, it was still believable with a I will kill him. I mean, come on, that's that's great. So maybe the fight wasn't great, but at least Sting gets to emote and and entertain us a little bit. And I will say, his death, a knife to the throat, I had not seen at the time, and I thought it was fairly gruesome. So. And he does get to to use the weirding way without the module. Yes, without the module, and then crack yeah. the floor open. Basically cracks Sting in half, yeah, and and the eyes roll back or whatever. And yeah, you're... but Sting looked great in that. I, I'll give props to the Emperor's. Um, the Emperor does have a good expression when he sticks that knife in his throat, and he's like, ay, 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 <laughs> and he knows he's lost. Yeah, so Paul kills Sting with a knife to the head, and then Paul's made ruler, and he's given this sick-ass cape, and uh, he makes... <laughs> He makes it rain on Arrakis, which 100% does not happen in the book. 
And like, like, <laughs> it, 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 I mean, I imagine the hardcore Dune fans at the time at this, I mean, they were probably checked out of the movie way before this, but I, this is, this, this is the part where you're like, you know, you throw down your pamphlet that you've been given on the way in and storm out in anger because yeah, Paul just making it rain on Arrakis is not <laughs> making it rain. Well, when you say it like that, well, it's kind of, it was kind of like slipping on a banana peel and landing in the mud at the same time because we just saw the 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 girl say he is the Quetzal Zadarak yeah. and and then it and then he makes it rain immediately after. Okay, and now let's follow this through. So this is a desert planet, and now it's just like pouring rain so much that there are like oceans like. That can't be good at all for the economy. It would just like, be a one big muddy <laughs> mess. Yeah. Mudslide. Like, I mean, when you it gets raining, when it rains too much here in California, we have mudslides that like, this is bad. Like, but, but listen, like I get, <laughs> I get why they thought they needed something, you know, they needed sure. the Death Star to explode. They need something to happen. That's like, look, everything's different. He's brought peace and like making it rain on a desert planet. Is a cool concept, you know. I get why they why they went there. Yeah, it's but it's it's weird the way it's done. Just because, like, I remember as a kid thinking that, like, I mean, in reality, okay, he makes it rain. I don't know for ten minutes, and that's cool or something. But the way Lynch does it is he makes it rain, and then you see crashing ocean waves. You know, so you, your mind, you're like, oh, did he make it so that there's like oceans now? Like, Yeah, it's the footage from Kaladin, right? It's like probably the exact same footage. So they're just like, just run that. <laughs> yeah, I actually thought it was Kaladin. Like, that's why it was kind of confusing to me. I thought it was, you know, the, the backdrop for the, the credits starting on Kaladin. Right, which doesn't make sense. Why are we going back to Kaladin? Like, I'm just talking about the visual language. I don't want to belabor this or anything because it's just a shot, but it's like, just it's confusing visual language, especially when you're a kid and you're taking everything sort of literally. I get your point, Chris, that dramatically as a as of an ending, it's kind of you, you see why they went there. And so, you know, we're at the end. Uh, there's a goofy credit sequence where soft rock Toto music is playing and silly shots of the cast looking kind of vaguely oh, embarrassed. The, the, the stills of the cast, but but not a still not shot. They're moving, right? They're posing. Yeah, they're right. poses. They're, they're not stills. They're, they're actually standing there looking awkward. Yeah, and so that basically wraps which is up the movie. On it, which, which is actually how they are through most of the movie. They just have an inner monologue. <laughs> Uh, dubbed over them while they're standing awkwardly. Yeah. They should have had like inner monologues going over the men. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. I hope the check clears for this. All right. Well, so uh, any last thoughts on Dune and specifically like what, yeah. What are your final thoughts on David Lynch's Dune? What do you think works about it? What do you think doesn't work about it? Why do you think it failed? Troy. I, I don't know who this film was made for. Like I said, when I remember this, uh, when I was a kid, uh, just with a lot of marketing and toys, and it is so not a film for kids. I mean, we all saw it, and you know, like like you said, it's kind of there wasn't a whole lot going on. This was kind of one of the only games in town that summer or whatever. But nobody understood what this film was about, right? If you had any of those <laughs> lunch boxes or notebooks or any any of the, the the things that were made for kids and all the decorations and stuff. Um, it was solely based on how it looked and 
there was some cool costumes and there were some ships or anything. But ask any of us in 1984 what this was about in one sentence. And, and you couldn't give me any answer for that at all. Like, it's is it about a, a hero who saves a planet? Or is it about, you know, somebody who learns how to use a special power or, or something? Totally baffling. So I think, you know, story-wise, it was a, a gargantuan book with a lot of ideas that needed to be reinterpreted and adapted into a a story which probably would have you know rubbed the feathers of some dune hardcore dune fans the wrong way but when you're making an adaptation uh you got to simplify it for for an audience and actually tell a story and i don't think this film ever really told a story yeah i mean as a kid i walked away from it just kind of looking at it through the star wars lens of like oh it's a story about a young guy who a hero. So, I mean, you know, I, I walked away from it thinking of it in those terms, but I just remember not liking it and not thinking it was good. And I just thought it was a bad star Wars really. Yeah. So if, if it was marketed, who was it marketed to? So if we didn't, as kids, you know, walked away from it feeling a little icky, which I think we all kind of did. Um, it wasn't, it was certainly, we didn't go around to school and say like, oh man, did you see that awesome film? Like it wasn't <laughs> talked about all summer long. So was it marketed to Dune fans or was it a family picture? No, I guarantee you back in the eighties, they did not care about Dune fans. At, at least, you know, they probably thought, well, this book was popular and it won, you know, awards and it's well regarded. So it's got to be good. And so, like, I think they just probably figured, well, this book is good and people like it and it's, you know, we can market it as another Star Wars. And so they probably figured, you know, they had a real winner on their hands just because, you know, it had that credibility. And I think they were marketing it as Star Wars. The fact that they had toys and everything is, you know, evidence of that. That's what they were thinking. I just don't think that, you know, back then marketing machines were the way they are now. I, you know, I don't, I don't, you know, I think now maybe people know better how to sort of market these things, you know, and now there's such a geek culture to a fault, I guess, Yeah, you know, because it, we did get some gems because they, they were just like, well, let's try this shit now. Yeah. I mean, look at Lord of the Rings, you know, I mean, if they had tried to do that in the eighties, I know they did the seventies cartoon, but if they had tried to do that in the eighties, it would have been terrible. You know, it would not have worked. Because there's just not the sort of culture, you know, around it where they trust to do it right. You know, the reason why Lord of the Rings worked is because they were like, we're going to do three movies. We're going to get this director who's got a great sensibility, who's done these little movies, you know, these like, smaller horror things. And like, you know, they trusted him and it, it was a gamble that worked because he really got it. But I think, you know, you know, the problem I think is that they... You know, this was a time when we didn't really understand as well how these things worked. You know, you're talking about a, a difficult to ad adapt book to begin with, and you're handing it to a director who's got really an oddball sensibility. And we were at the sort of dawn of sort of special effects taking another leveling up where you could really start to realize some some of these ideas effectively 
and it wasn't like cardboard spaceships. It, it I get why they tried it. I just don't. I think that they just made bad behind the scenes creative decisions. You know, from unfortunately from hiring David Lynch and you know, kind of moving forward. Even though I'm glad it exists because I kind of love it as an oddity. Absolutely. You know, I I love it as a David Lynch movie and I feel bad that he f- he has some some really hard feelings about this movie cuz I think there's great David Lynch moments in this film. Like I definitely put this in his body of work. I mean, it was definitely he was a director for hire and he was he was had a task before him to try to pull off you know, somebody else's vision, uh, but was able to, to inject some of his, some, some great scenes in there yeah, and sort of, you know, get his feet wet with, for some future work. Yeah. The movie's a mess and, but I just love it for being so weird. And I agree that, you know, the visual effects were just not ready at the time. Like you're talking about Lord of the Rings and how they took a, you know, a shot on it, but that was like, you know, 2000, um, that was after Phantom Menace when CG was prevalent and like, you know, they just, they, they did the best they could. They probably could have done better if it was like ILM and Lucas and like, you know, someone who was a little bit more technical. And it's hard for me to, to really say what Dune, the story and the book is because I came at it from this. This was my first introduction to it. So I don't know how honestly weird the book is if I wasn't if I came to it before having seen this movie, but it really does feel like they had a weird book and a weird director and they just doubled down on weird <laughs> and, and they just, you know, put a whole bunch of money and we climbed this tree way, way higher than anybody thought they could. And then the view was very icky as everybody says. And it's kind of cool now being an adult and watching it and realizing you know, that, that they allowed him to do this and spend all this money and make, make us feel this way using all this money, which normally would never happen. So it's, it's just a really cool oddity. And, and you're, you know, we all love sci-fi and it was just such a dearth in the eighties of quality sci-fi, you know, no one wants to watch something that, you know, doesn't have a good budget. Um, in order to do sci-fi, this is what we got. But we still got a cool movie, you know, and Kyle McLaughlin is good. And um, obviously Lynch is a great director and he at least knew this, this helped this. I'm sure this failure helped him define where he wanted to go. Like, like I feel like thinking about this now, like if Dune had been a success, who knows where David Lynch's career went, you know, and I'm much happier that he, that this was a failure and that he was one and done and didn't just meander making a bunch of half-assed blockbusters. You know, I'm much happier that we got Blue Velvet and we got Mulholland Drive from him and that he didn't, you know, go off on some money-making extravaganza if this had actually done well. Um, Although maybe if it had done well, like we would have gotten some great weird blockbusters out of him. Who knows? But um, well, I think we can all agree that we like the David Lynch movies that we got, and you know, this if this failing uh, begat that, then we're glad it failed. But Dune, yeah, his Dune is an enjoyable film, and I would recommend that anybody watch it. And uh, you know, we look forward to the new Dune.
about does it today for tentpole trauma. If you like what you heard, check out our social media presence on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter. Just look for tentpole trauma. That was easy, wasn't it? If you like us, hit subscribe and leave us a sterling review on iTunes, if you dare. If you really like us, head over to patreon.com and get involved in one of our fabulous tiers. You'll be glad you did. Want to communicate with Tentpole Trauma? Send an email to tentpoletrauma at gmail.com. We'd love to hear from you. And who knows, one day you may even get your email read on one of our shows. Well, thanks for listening, and we'll see you real soon.